welcome to Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories. I'm your host, Allison Preisinger-Higgins. The mission of this project is to take notice, to listen, to hold space by amplifying black stories, experiences, and voices. Conversations on family life, finding joy, and interests of folks in our country who encounter racism on a daily basis. A portion of these discussions will be dedicated to holding space for guests who are comfortable sharing their personal experiences with racism. Stories help us all learn and connect. We are here to listen, to take notice. Thank you for being with us. Let's take a moment to recognize, to take notice of the voices that are so often unheard. Land acknowledgement statements are an important part of honoring those whose land we now live and work on. I have chosen to begin each episode this way to spark ideas and keep these conversations in the front of our minds so that we may learn how to do better. I would like to acknowledge the land on which this episode was created. I would like to show gratitude to the traditional ancestral land of the Shoalwater Bay and Chinook tribes. Now, recognizing that these names are not the original names of the people of these areas, as I continue to learn how to better acknowledge Native people of these lands, I will adjust the wording of the beginning of each episode. I encourage listeners to research the land on which you live and are listening right now. Recognizing this is just the beginning. Welcome. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. Uh, Before I introduce our guest for today, I wanted to mention something that comes up briefly in this episode, but that we will get into further in an upcoming episode. One of my recent guests pointed out a reservation that she had about the question I had been asking my guests about uh, what would make them feel equal. Uh, I will leave the deeper discussion on this for my episode with the guests who brought this up, Yvette Dubell, but I did change the question slightly in this episode, which you will hear. So I wanted to mention that before we got started. As I've said before, I will adapt and change as I learn. Happy to hear your thoughts on these changes as they come up or any other feedback that you have. Just please be in touch with any of any thoughts, any feedback. I'd love to hear it. I had such a pleasant time speaking with our guests on today's episode, Rosemary Mupambwa. She is an author of the book Exhume or Heal, a widow's memoir, Getting Her Groove Back. She's a speaker and an internationally certified life transformational and relationship coach and also a retreat leader. She has a background as a college lecturer, domestic violence counselor, extensive mental health working experience, and a background in social work and sociology. Rosemary is an incredibly inspiring human who has been through so much with a goal of helping others through their struggles. Her strength and compassion shine through in our conversation. So please enjoy my talk with Rosemary Mumpambwa. Take Notice would like to take the time to acknowledge Black-owned businesses, organizations, and artists. If you have a suggestion of who we should highlight during our episodes, please find us on social media or visit our website. Converge Media is a leading producer of culturally relevant content in Seattle and across the Pacific Northwest. They create videos, editorial and creative writing, podcasts, and local news coverage curated specifically for an urban audience. They believe that the Black community deserves authentic representation, a focus on our community's issues, and equitable access to elected officials, leadership, and governmental information. Learn more about Converge Media, follow and support at wherewheconverge.com. So, Rosemary, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm I'm way over in Washington State in the States here. Are you in Canada? Yeah, I'm in Canada, in Calgary. Okay, wonderful. 
um, maybe to get started, maybe you can let us know a little bit about your background, where you grew up and who you were surrounded by growing up. And we'll go from there. My name is Rosemary. I grew up in Zimbabwe. I grew up among eight siblings. Uh, two of my eldest brothers, they were my stepbrothers, but I only knew uh, that they were my stepbrothers when I was eight, eight years old. I had no idea that they were my stepbrothers. That's how close we were. My mom brought us, um, you know, this strong blended family to a point where I grew up not knowing that my two elder brothers were my stepbrothers. And when I asked her, she said, does that really matter that they are your stepbrothers? It doesn't change anything. You are still all my kids. So that's how close-knit we were. I grew up with my dad and with my mom. My mom was a, a, a peasant farmer. She used to um, farm at this piece of land that we had in the village. My dad used to work in the city. So up to third grade, I was staying with my dad in the city. And then after that, uh, I requested to go to stay in the village with mom because I figured life with mom would be much easier because with dad, you know, I was doing all the cooking. He would come to work. And then when he comes to work, he would help me to cook. But most of the times, you know, it, it was just hard to live among, among the three men because both my stepbrothers were also staying with me in the city. And so after that, I decided to go to the village. And then when I decided to go to the village, my second stepbrother, uh, decided to come to the village with me to live with mom. That's when I discovered after five years that he was my stepbrother, but I had no idea that he was. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, after that, I went to college. After I finished high school, I went to university in Zimbabwe. I started working at this uh, private college in, in, in the Midlands in Zimbabwe. I got married. I had one child. Soon after my wedding, me and my husband went to the UK for, for university. We were in the UK for almost two and a half to three years, thereabout. Mm -hmm. We got some qualifications. We went back to Zimbabwe. Both of us were college lecturers at, this, at the same college uh, until he passed away in 2000. He left mm -hmm. me three beautiful children. The youngest was five. My oldest was 12. My son was nine years old. After he passed away two years later, my dad passed away in 2003 because um, of the situation surrounding the death of, of my husband. My dad had actually moved in with me to help me look after the children. So when he died, the situation, you know, just commanded mm -hmm. me to leave because I just felt I had no shoulder to cry on. I had nobody to protect me. And I left Zimbabwe for North America. I'm here in Canada since 2003. I was separated from my children for six years before they joined me. In 2009, I managed to get papers for my mom to join me. But unfortunately, in 2017, she passed away. Uh, before that, I had lost so many other relatives. Just 2019, my youngest brother had a heart attack and he passed away. Mm. Yeah, so now I'm here in Canada with my three children. Now they are grown up. They are all entrepreneurs. They're doing very well. And I am really proud that, you know what, I managed to, to raise these three children that my husband left me 
now they are, you know, productive members of the society. So, yeah, so I grew up around an extended family. To me, we were never alone in our house. There would be other people coming in to visit. They would visit thinking that they would stay a week, but they would be there for a month or two months. (laughs) You'd be saying to my mom, so when are these visitors, mom, going to leave? And my mom would say, a visitor will never finish the food in the house. What's your problem? Let them stay. If they have nowhere else to stay, let them stay here. And so we were never alone. We were always surrounded by other people from both my mother's side and my dad's side. That's, yeah. So right now, you know, when I was alone for those six years without my children, I was going nuts because I was never used to be alone. It was Mm -hmm. tough for me. Yeah. And then I come to North America. The culture here is different. Here, you know, it's one man for himself and God for us all. But in Africa, we we live in, in groups, you know, in in cluster families that, you know, if one problem hits you, it hits the whole village. You know, people are always together. They work together. They solve problems together. But here is quite a different culture. So those are the things that I had to, to go through again to relearn to be an individual in a world or a country full of people. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's quite the journey. Yeah, that would be a massive shift to come to North America, to Canada, and, and mm-hmm. just that it's, I can imagine it's very, very different. <laughs> just, very different, just, yeah. Yeah, hearing your explanation there, yeah. Wow, let's see here. So you went to university. What did you go for? What did you study? In the UK, I did... Um, a diploma in education, and then uh, back in Zimbabwe, I had uh, a degree as well in um, human services. But after I left the country, when I came here to North America, you know, they don't recognize our our credentials. You know, they don't validate them right there and then. It Mm. took me almost nine months for me to hear back from the government. And, uh, you know, you have to pay to get your credentials validated or accredited. And then I was told that I needed to go back to university for two full years if I if I wanted to be a, a lecturer in the subjects that I wanted to teach. So I thought, you know what, going back to university for two years, that's a lot of hours into college. What about my three children at home? So I decided to, to go back to college online so I did a diploma in social work. I did a diploma in uh, business administration. And then I did a diploma in uh, um, criminal psychology. And then after that, uh, that's when I decided to move from Ontario to come here to Alberta. When I came to Alberta, I went back to university again and did a degree in sociology. Oh, wow. <laughs> many, many degrees. <laughs> Wonderful. Wow. You were, you said you were alone in Alberta for six years with your kids still in Zimbabwe. Is that right? What, what kind of, were you studying at that time or were you working at that time? Um, Yeah, I was working now as a program coordinator because I had, uh, I had finished my diploma in, in social work, which I also did online because I wanted to be working full time so that I can I can be able to support my children back home. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But when I went back to college again to do my sociology degree, it was online again with Athabasca University because I still wanted to, to maintain my full-time position so that I could still support my children. My children were also in colleges and high school, and they still mm-hmm. needed you know, a roof over, over their head and stuff like that. So for me to improve my standard of, of living, I decided to go back to college because mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe, we had a good life before my husband passed away. So coming here, you know, starting from scratch, it wasn't easy. So I was really thriving to have a much better life than I had in Zimbabwe. That's when I decided, you know what, let me go back to university. And my kids were like, mom, when are you going to stop going to school? (laughs) Yeah, so I went back to school. And then after that, you know, I started getting much, much better, better jobs. And then uh, that's when I decided to write my book. And then after that, now I'm, you know, a relationship coach. I do uh, life coaching. I run retreats. I'm a speaker and I'm an author. But I also had to go through self-development courses again. (laughs) So it's like, you know, the learning process is not ending for me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Never ending. (laughs) Never ending. That's pretty wonderful. I would love to hear about your book and your current work. But before I ask you those questions, did you have a specific story or two in mind that you wanted to share? Yes, I wanted to share that, you know, when when a person leaves their home country, it's a huge decision that people make. You know, we sacrifice a lot. For me, I sacrifice the life of my children, the safety of my children. My own life, because when I came to North America, I wasn't even sure where I was going. I had a friend in the States, but uh, the friend was living in a uh, one-bedroom apartment, and she had two kids, and then we moved into a big apartment, but it was two bedrooms, two bedrooms. So I was sharing a room with her two kids. Hmm. So you can imagine, I had my own house in Zimbabwe. Now I'm coming to a foreign country, you know, we we go through a lot. And that emotional separation from your children, your culture, your food, your language and everything. And then you come to a new country. A lot of people, they give up on themselves. Mm. They give up on their dreams. I left my country because I wanted a better life for my children and a better life for me. But most of the immigrants, when we come here, we go through a lot of discrimination everywhere you go. You have to prove yourself all the time beyond reasonable doubt that you can do this job or you can uh, you can perform this task. Even in university, you know, when you are talking uh, on the phone with, the, with your college lecturer, if they don't like your voice, you are done. Mm. You know, you are done. But... And then you hear, you see even the common person on the street, they give you a hard time because they are an immigrant, but they don't know my story. You know, they don't know my story. And if we would reverse engineer that, you come to my country and I treat you the same way you are treating me, how would you feel? You know, this is the question that I always ask people, like, how would you feel if I treat you the way you are treating me? I am not here for, you know... um, to get free service from the government. 
I had to work three jobs, four jobs, going to college at the same time. But people have this notion that when immigrants come into a country, they want um, free money from the government. That's not it. That's mm-hmm. not it. You know, we come here and we work. We go to college. I've just told you that I went to college. In the meantime, I was working three jobs, imagine, and going to university full time. So we go through a lot of sacrifices, but it's because a lot of immigrants, they come here because we are determined to follow our dreams. And most of the immigrants, they either fall through the cracks that time because, you know, they've been given so much hardship through their journey and they, and they decide to drop their dream and then just continue working menial jobs. So what I want to tell anybody who is from another country coming to North America where you are an immigrant, don't give up your dream. Continue grinding, continue working. You know, it's not everybody who is going to be uh, giving you a hard time creating all these barriers. One of these days, you will meet somebody who will give a good word for you or who will just open a door for you. This is what happened for me, you know. One lady heard about my story and she started opening doors for me. So the same to the listeners, if you are going through a lot of hardship, people are creating all these barriers for you. What also helped me was prayer. Pray, God will open doors for you, but don't give up. Don't give up on your dreams simply because you are facing all these roadblocks and all these barriers. No. One day a door will open and you will walk freely in the door. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, having faith that you just got to keep going. Yeah, can, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the woman that you mentioned that opened the doors for you, opened a door at least for you? Yeah, uh, I was working for this agency here in, um, in Calgary. In my previous job, I was really going through a lot of hard times with the, with the director that I was working with. She continued to promote uh, all the juniors in my program. I would train everybody that was coming in because I I was the, um, what can I say, the longest serving member in that program. Everybody who was coming was just working for a year or two and then they would leave. But I had been with this agency for almost eight years. So anybody that was coming, they were sent uh, to my office for training and stuff. But then uh, four or five months when they've uh, completed their probation, they would become my boss. And I'm like, okay, so what's going on? And then I discovered that, you know what? It was because of the color of my skin. So when I confronted the, the managing director about it, she, she treated me like a kid. One time, you know, I, I was on the phone with uh, one of the workers who were trying to solve a problem. And then the other worker hadn't handled the situation properly. So I was trying to, uh, to take her through the journey and, you know, telling her what she should have done instead of doing what she was doing. But this, uh, this colleague then went to the director and created fire for me. So it was like it was my fault. And I was trying to, to justify and just, you know, clear my name that, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't even there. All I had was a phone call and I was trying to find information to see what was going on. But then I was told, you, and, you are not the boss. Why are you trying to solve a problem? 
And I'm like, well, she came to me asking for advice. The client called me because I had worked with that client. So the client called me because the client was in distress. How was I supposed to hold that situation? You know, mm-hmm. I had worked with this client before and she was comfortable talking to me. And this other worker was still new. So I was trying to help the situation, but oh my goodness, it was all my fault to a point where it even went as high as the CEO. And Mm -hmm. then the CEO's secretary is the one that overheard the conversation. She is the person that had doors opened for me because she spoke to the CEO and said, no, you are being given the wrong information. Rose is not wrong. She is, you know, she is right what she is doing. But you are only hearing one side of the story. And it was clear that because of the color of my skin, I wasn't supposed to be telling the other person that they were not uh, doing their job correctly. And I was not the supervisor. You know, what gave me the audacity to say so? You know, so this woman is the one that actually spoke to the CEO and then the CEO had a meeting with me and tried to apologize. You know what? It's okay. We can solve this situation. But, you know, after that, when stuff like that happens, you are no longer comfortable. Yeah. So after that, there was a job in an agency that we were working uh, in conjunction with. The supervisor of that uh, agency knew the secretary of the CEO. So it was just in passing that she was talking about it and said, oh yeah, I interviewed one of the ladies from your agency. Do you know her? And she's like, oh, Rosemary, I know her. And then she started talking a lot of the things that I had done in that, you know, present agency that I was still working for. And she is the lady that uh, got me the job because her reference you know, he uncalled reference actually opened the door for me for a new job. And mm. it, it was the month after I started in the new position that the manager for this new agency said, oh, you know what? I hired you because of the commendation that I was given by the secretary from your previous agency. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't even ask her to be my reference. And she said, I know. She just gave me the reference without knowing that I wanted to hire you. So because of that, mm. I hired you because, you know, she gave me a good word before she even knew that, you know, you were the last two candidates that I was deciding to hire. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you never know when that that, that little helping hand is going to pop out. <laughs> yeah, you never know. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. Now you're doing relationship and life coaching. Are yeah. you still working? Is that your full-time job and speaking and, and all that? Is that your full-time work now? Or are you still working for this previ- this agency that you're talking about? Yeah, I'm still working for this other agency. Wonderful. So relationship coaching and, and all this, because most of the times now we do it over Zoom. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's flexible. It's, yeah, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So it's flexible. You can do it anyway, even in my car. I remember one time I was coming from work and this lady from is it Italy. Yeah. She had bought my book and she had a couple of questions. 
and I was talking to you all the way to, to my house. <laughs> Oh wow! Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's so you know, yeah. what you can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes I gripe about it because it get it gives me you know it's hard to keep up and it's hard to do this or that. But I mean, all the positives connecting, yeah. like being able to talk to you, and I'm all the way over here on the west coast. Yeah, and, you know, it's just amazing. I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, awesome. Wonderful. So can you, let's see, so you wrote a book. Can you tell us about your book and, and your current work with, with that? And when you're able to do speaking engagements, what you do with that as well? So this is my first book, Exume or Heal, mm. a widow's memoir, Getting a Groove Back. So now I've also released this, uh, the handbook to this book. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So when a person finishes reading this one, they can buy the workbook and go through it to make sure that they've understood because there's a lot of healing therapies and exercises in the, in the, in the first book. And then I've also published this one. It's called A Triumphant Snapback, Resetting Your Life. And this one is mainly to reignite your groove after you've gone through widowhood, divorce, or a heartbreak. How to, you know, get back into, into the dating scene and, and start afresh. So what I do with my book um, for the conferences that I've been a, a speaker, uh, after I published my book in uh, 2019, in December, in January, I received a call to go and talk about my book in Oslo, in Norway. That was my first time I flew to Norway. I had never been to Norway. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so it was a women's conference, and I was talking about grief, uh, the truth about grief. Uh, what grief is all about, what it means to be going through grief, and also how you can pick up the pieces after you've gone through grief. A lot of people uh, only thought that, you know, grief is when you have lost a husband or you have lost a dad or you have lost a mother. But grief is anything that causes you pain. So when I was talking about that, a lot of people were like, Oh, okay. We didn't realize that, you know, grief can be anything. So I was going through uh, the speech, you know, talking about my journey as a widow, that when you lose a husband, there's a lot of things that you go through. You change all these statuses. You know, to begin with, I was his girlfriend. I became his fiance. I became his wife when I got married. I became mother of his children. When he was sick, I was his caregiver. But at the same time, I was still his wife. And then when he passed away, I became a widow overnight. And overnight as well, I became a single parent. These are the things that I had never planned for. Nobody trains you to be a widow. And nobody even trains you to be a divorcee. You know, Mm -hmm. when your status changes like that, society will change as well. But it will change on the negative side, the society is never with you when you are a widow. As widows, you are treated differently, even a divorcee. The friends that you used to be with when you are still coupled, they will divide themselves. You know, some will come with you or some will go with your ex-husband. When your husband passes away, everybody will run away. There's only a few people that will stay with you. And those will be your closest friends. There were um, a lot of ladies in there that had lost their husbands a while back. And I spoke about, you know, 
the things that are said at your husband's funeral. For example, a person will come and say, wow, you are so young to be a widow. So now what are you going to do? You know, those questions to them, you know, they are so innocent. But is the way that they are going to make the widow feel like, okay, so you know what? I didn't choose to be a widow. This status was just thrown at me. And then you are asking me, what am I going to do? I just buried my husband two days ago. I don't even have a plan. Or even going back to my house, I don't even know how I'm going to go there. What mm. am I going to do? I, I have no idea. But, you know, people ask you all those questions. Or they'll say, wow, he left you this brand new car. Was it paid in full or it was still a car note? Okay, so now I'm supposed to put my laundry in the open. Everyone mm. to know that you know what this car wasn't paid cash, but to them, you know, they are concerned in a way, but they don't know how those questions make the widow feel, you know. Mm-hmm. They don't know because most of them have never been in your shoes, they don't know how you feel, you know. They mm. ask you all these questions. So now, did he leave you enough money to look after the kids? Well, if he knew that he was going to die, I'm sure he. You would have left me a million dollars, but death comes without notice. You know, right. death comes without notice, even uh, when you are divorced. Most of the times, it's a surprise to a woman that, wow, you are divorcing me. Oh, yeah, I'm divorcing you because I'm going to be living with so and so. They will leave you for somebody else. And it's most of those things that you are never ready for. You are never ready for. But I guess because people, most of the people, they haven't walked in your shoes. They just don't know how to behave or how to support you. What I've always told people is, you know, when you visit a widow or when you go to visit your friend who has just uh, been given divorce papers to sign, don't say anything. Ask the person who is affected, how can I help you? Because sometimes when you start offering unnecessary help, is going to be annoying to the person who is going through the situation. Because sometimes all we need is just your presence and your silence. It's comfort enough. But because, you know, a lot of people, they try to help, but they don't know how. And they just fail to ask, how can I help you? That's the question that people just need to ask. How can I help you? How can I be of help? How can I be of service to you? in this situation. And the person who is in the situation will know what they want or will tell you, you know what, for the time being, I just want to be alone. That's all. I just want some peace to process some stuff. And people should respect that. If she says she wants to be alone, okay, let it be. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. It makes me wonder if if the struggle with people knowing what to say or not also comes from the hesitation of our culture or, or different cultures in society to even talk about divorce or death in in an open way. So yeah. people are just feeling lost when they when they haven't run into it and they're in the presence of it. So yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just sitting with people and, and just being there and asking how you can help, that's that just really simplifies <laughs> simplifies does. what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. And most of the times, you know, um, the widows, even the divorcees, they are going through a lot of shame. Mm. Because there's this thing that, you know, when you are divorced, 
you no longer belong to a certain society or a certain culture of people. Mm-hmm. And most of these divorces, that's what they struggle with. They are so ashamed that, you know what, they could not make the marriage work. But most of the times, you know, if you talk to the woman, she would have done everything she could. She might have bent backwards to make the marriage work. But if the guy has checked out of the relationship, there's nothing you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes even the circumstances will force you to leave the marriage. But a lot of people, you know, they hide because of what society would treat them after that. You know, I remember when I got widowed, I went through a lot of shame, a lot of fear, because people started treating me differently. You know, people started treating me differently. You walk into a supermarket and people know that, oh, she is the widow. Just the looks from people. It's like, you know, I have people repellent syndrome on me. Like, you know, I'm just a human being just like you. I'm just going through grief and I didn't ask for this grief. And then when they address you, it's, oh, Rosemary, oh, you mean that widow? Mm. Okay. Widow is not my title and it's not my last name. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. They call me Rosemary. Oh, you mean the widow? Mm. Really? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, wow. or oh, they will say Rosemary. Oh, you mean the divorcee? Wow, seriously. Hmm. Huh? Is that how you treat other people when they are in in a predicament like that? So right. you know, it's all these labels that you get. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Why is it that when I am married with my with my husband, when somebody asks me, "Oh, you mean Rosemary? Oh, the married one?" No, they don't say that. It's when you're divorced or widowed or heartbroken. Oh, you mean that one that was dumped by so-and-so? Right. (laughs) Anything that they can point out that's negative or put you in some category. Putting you in categories. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, why, people of my nation? Why? (laughs) Mm. But people do it. And most of the times, they don't even think about it. It just comes out. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, society, we need to learn not to give people, you know, statuses because of their predicaments. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. One of the questions that I ask everybody is what brings fun or joy into your life? What brings me fun is to be around the people that build me up and lift me up, around positive people. My children, they bring me fun. I like to be around people that are motivated to improve their lives. I say so because I was in this pity party mindset for a long time. And I never thought I would be able to be happy again. But you know what? Your mindset, everything starts in the mind. The way you talk to yourself, these you know private mind chatters that we have, these are the ones that can either build you or break you. So what I want to tell people is, listen to what you are telling yourself. What is it that you are telling yourself every day? Are you telling yourself that you are a loser? Are you telling yourself that, you know what, I wish I had done this? You wish you had done this. Okay, now that's yesterday. What are you doing today? Because your future, your tomorrow starts right now. What are you doing right now? Crying about the past is not going to change the past. The past is gone. 
it's gone. You need to flip the page to the next page so that you can start afresh. Start today. Stop looking at, at yesterday. And always, when you wake up in the morning, what are you looking forward to? This is what makes me happy. When I wake up in the morning, I look around, I'm like, I am thankful that I'm alive. I jumped out of bed. I'm alive. Although, you know, as you get older, it gets difficult to get out of bed. But I'm thankful I'm alive. You know, I'm thankful that I'm alive. I'm also thankful that, you know what, since I started writing, it has brought me so much joy. Just writing has brought me so much joy because I know what I'm writing and what I'm talking about in conferences is helping other women. Working with women, especially that have gone through the the road that I walked, walked, widows, divorces, heartbroken. I've been widowed, right? And I've been divorced from my culture and from the people that used to be around me as my husband, as uh, as Mrs. Mpambwa. I'm still called Mrs. Mpambwa, but my husband is no longer there, right? Mm-hmm. But so uh, that unity that I had with my husband. He's no longer there, so I am divorced from that unity. Now I'm a single mom, right? So a lot of the women, when they've lost their husband, they go through a lot of what I call what will people say syndrome. So when they come to me, they are coming to me with all these notions that, you know, people are telling me I shouldn't start dating. People are telling me because I am past this age and, and my husband passed away, I, should, I shouldn't even think of having a, a relationship. And I'm sitting there, I'm telling them, you know what, I'm almost 60. I'll be 60 this September. I'm dating, you know. Why are you stopping to make yourself happy? Simply because you're still worried about what, what will people say. So when I s- sit with them, we do what I call a personal inventory. What makes you happy? Most of them, they have no idea anymore what makes them happy because they've spent their whole life looking after other people. They've been looking after a husband, the husband passed away. They were looking after their, their family, their children, and they forgot who they are. So when I work with a woman like that and help them to regain their identity, pick up the pieces and gain their groove back, reignite themselves, find themselves, reset their life, and start their life afresh. Give them tools to go back into the dating scene if they want to. But if they decide to be single, that's fine. We'll work with you to make sure that you regain your confidence, to empower you to be an independent woman that is not going to be dependent on other people, and to work on your mindset and remove the poor me mindset that is keeping a lot of people stuck in their pain, regret as well. A lot of people, they regret, oh, I wish I hadn't wasted so much time in this relationship. I should have done this. I should have done that. But you know what? It's gone. It's gone. Mm-hmm. So when I speak with them uh, to, to change their mindset, after a session or two sessions, and then they call me, they are like, wow, Rose, I never looked at life that way. The way you put it, now I can see why. I was so stuck in my yesterday. So that brings me, you know, joy. Like right now, I was working with a lady in uh, South Africa. Now she has met this rich, <laughs> this rich guy. And yet all this time she was like, I don't think I, I even qualify to be going out with anybody because I'm like this, I grew up like that. And I'm like, you know what? 
you are putting labels on yourself. You are the one that is your own enemy. You know, this is what I call self-destructive behavior. Stop looking down on yourself. Love yourself. So I went on a mindset. We went through all these self-confidence and self-esteem exercises. Now when you see her, she's a brand new person, as confident as ever. She mm. might be getting married at the end of this year if the pandemic is over. And I might be invited to the wedding. So all those things, they really make me happy. They really do. I can imagine how joyful that work must be. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, thanks for sharing that. You shared a story about your uh, some racism in your work life. And one of the questions that, um, I, that I've asked each guest um, has to do with that in a way. Mm-hmm. My original question has recently been pointed out that I need to clarify it a little bit. So I don't know which one you got in your email, but yeah. I've shifted it a little bit. And the question is, uh, what would make you feel seen as genuinely equal? Uh, Just to be treated equally, not to be treated differently. Mm -hmm. You know, one time I was in the dollar store. There was um, some Caucasian people, you know, behind me. And this lady in the dollar store said, um, do you want a plastic bag or the recyclables? And I said, no, I don't want that bag because all the time I pay for one, I forget it in my car. So there's no need for me to buy the expensive one. Give me the plastic one that if I forget it, it's okay. And then this woman said, don't you care about the environment? And I'm like, the lady that was was in front of me, she asked for a plastic bag and you didn't preach to her about environment. Why are you preaching to me about environment? I just told you, I don't want that other bag, because I'll forget it in my car. And she went on and on. Mm. I'm too sensitive about the the climate. Don't you know that? And and I'm standing there. I'm like, you know what? If I continue arguing with her, because I'm a black woman, then they will start talking to me about the angry black woman. So Mm. what I did was I I just folded my hands and I looked at her, and she continued talking. Until the lady was the third one in the row. She was white and she came and she said, what's going on here? What's wrong with this woman? If she says she doesn't want that bag, why are you forcing her? So until that woman interjected, I was this close to walking out and leaving everything that I wanted Mm -hmm. because of that. And sometimes you get powerless because if you try to stress your point, then people will think because you are black, you are now violent. And then the next thing you see police coming. And then when the police come, they always go on the other side. And then it will take them time unless if another white person comes in to help me out, I'll be the one at fault. So all we ask for is, you know what? Treat me just like everybody else. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But if I am right, give me the respect to be right. But most of the times it's like, you have to prove yourself. You know, one time, we had gone to BC. I wanted to uh, to ask uh, at, at this hotel so that I could I could start planning a retreat for the end of this year. And this receptionist, you know, pretended like she couldn't understand what I was asking for, and she kept on saying, "Don't you know that there's a pandemic?" And I said, "I know there's a pandemic." I said, "At the end of the year, which year are you talking about?" Like, okay, which year are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I just told you. 
I wanted to find out at the end of the year, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a possibility for us to run a retreat. And if so, what are the costs? What does the, you know, your hotel, what does it offer? That's all I wanted. That's all the information I wanted. So mm-hmm. fortunately, I had my, you know, white boyfriend with me. He's the one that came to my rescue and said, are you telling me that you can't understand what she's saying? Mm. You know, and then because she saw him coming to my aid, she's like, no, 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 I didn't say it that way. I just wanted to get more details, more details about what. (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) You know, some of those things, it's like, okay, yeah. You sit there or, or you stand there and you're like, oh my God, shall I scream? What can I do? Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> and it can be super subtle or it can be super blatant. Yeah. And you never yeah. know what you're going to run into, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you try to raise your voice to search the point, oh, she's violent. Yeah. Then the police are there. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I was white, I'm sure they would not do that. No. You know? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and as soon as he came and tried to find out what was going on, she's like, "No, no, no! I just wanted more details. Okay, more details about what I was trying to explain to you." But mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you are treated like an idiot. Like <laughs> no mm-hmm. brains. Like, okay, come on, I have five senses just like you. You know, all I want is information. That's all. <laughs> and the attitude completely shifts as as he yeah. came around. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. It's completely shifted, you know. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I said, you know what? Uh, on second thought, I don't think I'll come back to to run a retreat at this at this hotel. No, not yeah. after this. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah. Oh well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Oh yeah. Uh, I ra- we ran into my husband and I ran into something similar to that at the at the um, Department of Licensing the other day. Yeah. Where he was in there trying to get tabs I think and and she was giving him a hard time and he Mm -hmm. said as soon as I came up with my checkbook and like asking questions as soon as I came back with my checkbook she shifted completely oh I had no idea because because how she was when I got there was totally fine yeah Yeah. it's like day and night you know day and night it's like Mm -hmm. like, wow are you the same person I was talking to just two minutes ago right you know Oh, thank you so much for joining me and chatting with me. Can you let us know where we can find your information and anybody that you would like to um, highlight? We would love to hear that as well. So, um, yeah, I would like to uh, highlight my children for the moral support that they gave me. You know, they are mm-hmm. always there for me. Rubimbo, um, a lot of people know as Natasha, and then Ronnie, my son, and my youngest, Ropa that you know what, these guys have been there for me. These guys have so much faith in me, and I'm so happy that I have uh, supportive children. My siblings as well, my sisters, they are all over the world. I thank them a lot for everything that they are doing and not forgetting God himself. He has kept me going. When I thought I had nothing else left, God was there. And there are people that I pray with in my church they are always there for me. Yeah, they were actually here this morning mm-hmm. uh, on Zoom praying with me, uh, which is really, really a huge support because we are all going through so much in the world. 
And if you don't have people that support you like these guys do, a lot of people are really, really going through a hard time. And I also want to thank um, the ladies that I work with uh, in the women's conferences that I go. They're always there supporting me. There's also a lady called uh, Annette here in Calgary. She's one of my mentors. She's about 75 years old. And every time I call her, even when I'm doing seminars, when I call her, she's there to give me advice, free advice. Most mm-hmm. people will charge me, but she's there to, to teach me. Two weeks ago, I lost my, uh, my auntie to COVID in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. And uh, she said, oh, I haven't heard from you for almost a week or two weeks because, you know, every week she always sends me a message. And I said, you know what? I was just going through a hard time. I lost my auntie. And, you know, since then, she's calling me every other day, sending me a message. And this other day I was at work. I was just going through a hard time. And from nowhere, she calls me. I was just thinking Mm -hmm. of you, Rose. I was praying for you. And I just got this feeling that I need to talk to you. And I said, Wow, you are such a godsend. I'm just going through a rough time today. You know, so mm-hmm. all those are the people that I really want to call out for and thank. So where people can get me uh, on my website, it's called roseslifecoaching.com. Roseslifecoaching.com. And my email address is the same, roseslifecoaching at gmail.com wonderful facebook i'm on uh rose life coaching as well yeah so that's where they can get me but if they go to my website they'll be able to connect with me anyway Mm -hmm. all the information is there information is there yeah Great. We'll be sure to put that in the episode notes and on our website so people can find you once they hear this episode for sure. Thank you again, Rosemary. I really appreciate you being a part of Take Notice and um, spending your time with me this afternoon. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us for Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories. Please subscribe and follow us on social media. We are at Take Notice Podcast. It would really help us out if you could take a couple of minutes to review our podcast. Thank you for your support. Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories is produced, hosted, and edited by Allison Preisinger Higgins, co-produced by Amanda Ray. Music by Version Big Five featuring Darius Higgins. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for taking notice.